So being aware here now, your body sitting like this, just observing the present moment, being fully here and now aware of the way it is, the posture, the breath, the state of mind. So reflecting and observing like a mirror, it's like this. When you look into a mirror, you the reflection in a mirror the way they are. You identify with the body, with with the physiology of the body, with the appearance with the moods of the mind, the thoughts, the memories, and how we create an ego or a sense of a separate self. But what is not self at this moment is awareness, conscious awareness. So I've said many times, you know, you know you're conscious. You don't have to, it's obvious every one of you, including myself, are conscious, experiencing consciousness. We, when we think about it, we think of it as inside us, as consciousness inside me. Each individual has their own consciousness. That's how it seems when we think. The thinking, ability to think is a, is a great gift that the human race has. There's also a kind of curse because we tend to believe our thoughts. We believe how we feel. We interpret everything in very personal terms and right and wrong, good or bad, true or false. So we live in a world of fear, greed, aversion, these kind of emotions we identify with because when we 
don't know the Dhamma, we don't know ultimate reality when we're always operating from the illusion of a separate self as a physical human body. We see ourselves always in terms of our past, our history, our memories, our cultural biases, our political views and opinions. It's always in in these divisive terms of good and bad, right and wrong. So that's just to emphasize how language dominates our conscious experience, how we interpret everything through separation, through division. And that's what language thinking, is what thinking does. It's a, its purpose is to compare one condition with another. The Dhamma, you can't conceive the Dhamma. Ultimate reality. You can't make an image of it. You can't imagine it. Yet we take refuge in the Dhamma. We say, Tamang Sarnangatami, part of the ceremonies of Theravada Buddhism, to take refuge in the Dhamma. What, what is the Dhamma? And this is an important question to ask yourself. So, because we, we think, well, Dhamma is the truth. We put, English words like truth or ultimate reality. But what is that here and now? Right now, in this moment, what is ultimate reality? What is the truth? What is the unshakable, immortal reality of Dhamma at this present moment? So this is like self-inquiry. We're going, we're, we're not trying to find an answer in terms of another definition, some smart kind of intelligent new description of Dhamma from a dictionary or from a, from a Pali scholar or from a, a Buddhist. But just to ask yourself the question, if Dhamma is here and now, what is it at this moment? And the thinking mind stops because you don't know. But you know you're not conceiving Dhamma. You're not trying to, maybe you're trying to think about it, create a new definition, a better English definition of the word Dhamma. You might be trying to do that, but don't stop trying to figure it out. Just be aware. What is the Dhamma? Now, here and now, in terms of each one of us, individual forms sitting here. And when you're not thinking, when you're not trying to figure it out, you're still conscious. There's consciousness, which is the constant reality of our lives. It's not created. You don't create consciousness. But if you just reflect on your life as 
you've lived your life, the memories you have, early memories you have from childhood to the present moment, the good fortunes, the misfortunes, the success, the failures, all the best and the worst that can happen to anyone in one's lifetime, consciousness is always present. It's not dependent on anything. It's not created. But it is what we are at this moment. Every one of us is conscious here and now. And so this is, this is a way of reflecting, of inquiring into the way things are. The thinking mind, wanting to define Dhamma, have definitions, make images of it. You know, the best they do in Theravada Buddhism, make a Dhammajaka, a kind of wheel, a symbol for it. But... It's here and now all the time, so we don't need any symbols really or, or definitions because we are conscious at this moment and it's like this. And you can't imagine it, you can't find it, you can't point it out, but you know it because it is the very knowing itself at this moment. Knowing it's like this. <clears throat> So this word that we use, Dhamma, or in Mahayana Buddhism, Dhamma, it's a, you know, it's a very uh, useful word to reflect on. Because, it, you know, we, in, in the Thai language, they use it all the time as part of their language. It's part of the, it's so integrated into the, the Thai culture and language, but it's, but what is it? Even in Thailand, you know, they think the Dhamma is the Tripitaka. <laughs> or the Dhamma is what I'm doing now, giving a Dhamma Desana. Today I was told somebody was staying at a monastery and they didn't hear any Dhamma. So... <laughs> So what do you, do you hear Dhamma? I'm I'm challenging you now. I, you didn't you know no. Am I am I the one that's telling you what Dhamma is or giving you a Dhamma desana? That's that's the terms we use. Or trying at this moment to point out Dhamma, the reality of Dhamma. It's not some abstract kind of mystical force that we can imagine. You know, if we think it's some kind of cosmic, metaphysical reality that's beyond us, 
You know, so you're trying to think of it in terms of something way beyond yourself. When at this very moment you're the Dhamma itself, you don't have to look any further or outside. Now the thinking mind is, is you know, it's conditioned. It's a sankhara. And this word sankhara in this tradition, Pali tradition, for those who may not know the term, it means conditions or phenomena. That which is born and dies, begins and ends. So, in this way, the sankharas are what we identify with. We're actually very attached, very aligned, very integrated into the birth and death cycles. You know, we're, we're attached to the death perception. We're all going to die. And how many, you know, that's not something you want to say in public, you know, because we all know that we're all going to die someday. But it's pretty, yeah, you know, we talk about life and happiness and extending your lifespan and, and living forever. Uh, and, you know, when we die, if we've been, Good, we go to heaven and live for 84,000 eons in a blissful state. And these are imaginations of eternal happiness, eternal condition, eternal phenomena that we can create with our thinking mind. We can imagine, make pictures of heavenly states. And death itself, the word death, is is a pretty daunting word because what happens when we die? This is a, a question often asked to many of us. And it's an interesting question. What does happen when we die? You know, when when somebody dies, what happens to them? They have a soul? Does it, the soul, is it consciousness or is it, a personal soul, you know, each one, each person here has an individual personal soul. That's what I was taught when I was growing up. And does that personal soul go, leave leave the body when, when I'm dead and go to some place? Or does it, is there no soul, it's just empty phenomena, oblivion, nothing, You know, so there are various takes on what happens after death in terms of reincarnation, rebirth, heaven and hell, reward and punishment, or oblivion. It's just wipeout, nothing. But the very, at this moment, each one of us is a conscious, experiencing consciousness And ask yourself, what happens, what will happen to me when I die? You don't know. But you know you don't know. That's consciousness, awareness. It's like this.
So they asked me, Ajahn Sumito, you've been meditating for many years now, you must know what happens when somebody dies. I would give a smart aleck answer, like, I haven't died yet. And when I die, I'll come back and tell you. <laughs> and so, but, but the, but death is, is, is the nature of sang, sankaras, of conditions. It's the end of something that was born. Something that began and ends. Something that is born dies. It's the same thing, the end, the cessation, death. And as we meditate in this, like, investigating Dhamma, when we investigate the t- using the teachings of the Buddha, you know, you don't need to wait to find out what death is when you're t- until you're your body dies, because death is the end of a sankara, so we observe that in vipassana meditation. <clears throat> you can in, spend a lot of time just investigating the end of the, the absence of something. An emotion like anger, it's a very common, powerful emotion that's easy to recognize. When it arises, you know there's anger. You think you're angry. You know, you usually identify with it. You think, I'm angry, and it's because that person insulted me. And we go on, make a proliferate about it. Whose fault is it? When we grasp the anger, we identify with the anger, we blame it on external causes. But we know there's anger, there's, that's consciousness, knowing a sankara. Now if we don't grasp anger, if we begin to see anger, if we're patient with that emotion when it arises, allowing it to, uh, we can ref- you can feel it, it's very obvious, strong feeling, physical feeling, and you accept it, allow it to be what it is, patiently endure its presence, it ceases. And that's non-anger. That's the end of anger. Anger that arose, sustained itself for a while, and then ceased. So what is it that knows the presence and absence of anger is consciousness? That's a constant reality through the whole process of every emotion, you know, whether it's greed, hatred, delusion, fear, jealousy. So what is your refuge then? Is in awareness, is a Appamado amatabadang, mindfulness is the path to the deathless. So that's the deathless, isn't it? Mindfulness is a, is, doesn't mean you don't ever feel anger or greed or fear. It's not about destroying the sankaras or judging them or 
favoring one over the other. It's knowing them. They are like this. They are what they are. They arise and cease. So during this time that I've been here at Amravati, this is the same reflection I give almost every time. And uh, it's just to be repeated because, I, you know, it's, it's until you really investigate yourself, you feel this sense of, of urgency and determination to investigate Dhamma, not just listen to me and say, Ajahn Sumedho said this or that, or whether you agree or disagree with me. <clears throat> then consciousness is non-self, it's anatta, because right now consciousness is, the, is not personal. What's personal, what we make personal is the physical body, uh, our memories, our thoughts, our emotions, all the sankharas take on um, me and you quality. Personally, we, we feel very identified with what we think what we remember with our past, with our feelings. So we create a sense of that I'm the same person from birth until this very moment. I've been this same person all this time. But when you really investigate, you begin and see personality as sankara. You know, your personality changes according to conditions, according to the weather, according to the time of day, according to whom you're with, about the, whether you're feeling healthy or unhealthy. Just observe what is conscious, what is awareness of personality, of what you think you are, believe you are, as a separate individual, as a physical being, physical body. And you observe it, you know, think I'm, say I'm a Buddhist monk. I can make that, that's, convention, isn't it? But it's words, isn't it? It's, it's a sense. I'm thinking I, and I'm referring to this being here, am a Buddhist monk. Well, that becomes part of my sense of myself as a Buddhist monk. How I relate to the world, how I see myself in relation to others and and uh, civilization in general. But at this moment, when I think I'm a Buddhist monk, I'm not trying to say I'm not a Buddhist monk, but I'm observing that that's a creation in my mind at the moment. I am a Buddhist monk is a, is a sentence that I uh, think that I'm saying out loud right now at this time. 
And when that's gone, when I stop thinking I'm a Buddhist monk, there's still consciousness. Consciousness is not a Buddhist monk. So this is a, this is an encouragement to a way of investigating to find out what sakyaditi or the self view, the ego, the sense of being a separate person. That these perceptions, you know, we we're not trying to to annihilate them or criticize them, but observing what you know. You know, you're thinking. What is it that is aware of thought? Thought can't be aware of itself, but you're aware of thought, you can be aware of thinking. You can be aware of feeling, you know, if you're feeling interested or bored or confused or agreeing or disagreeing, happy or inspired or whatever, you know. Each one of you know what you're feeling at this moment. What is it that knows feeling, the mood, the state of mind that, that you're experiencing at this moment? What is it that is aware of that, that is aware of the sense of yourself as a personality, as a monk, as a nun, as a lay person? And that's what we... We use this word mindfulness, sati, sampatanya, mindfulness. Sati means mindfulness, and sampatanya is like intuitive awareness. And I like this word intuitive because this intuition isn't rational. It's not about, you know, it's, it's what you, you kind of feel in the moment. It embraces the moment. It's it's not it's not about right and wrong, good or bad, or true or false. But we are sensitive forms that have to live in a sense world with that we have hardly any control over. We can't just make it the way we want it. We have to endure, like coming over to the temple. A few minutes ago, they were saying this next week it's going to get much colder. And Ajahn Soko said, colder? <laughs> it was pretty cold. Pretty cold now. What is it that knows cold, that feels cold, that is aware of cold? The body sensitive to heat Cold, an awareness of cold, awareness of hot. And that's consciousness. An intuitive awareness is, is of atmosphere, of the general feeling. It's not, it's not where sati samajanya, sati means mindfulness here and now. This is present moment, pachubana dhamma here and now. It's like this. And when I keep using this term, it's like this because it's a way of accepting the way it is without pointing out any particular thing. 
what you're feeling, experiencing, it's like this. And you're aware, you know, of the feeling, the mood, the state of mind that, that you are experiencing in this moment is like this. Can you define it? Can you ex- define it and describe it? Analyze it exactly so I, that I might know exactly what you're feeling this time? Most you can say is you're bored, interested, confused. Use words, more words, to describe the feeling, the mood, the state of mind that we have, that we're experiencing, which is changing. Because it's not constant. Moods are are very impermanent conditions. So then consciousness in in the in the Buddhist uh, sense of the word has, is immeasurable. It has no no form. So it's not yours, not mine. It's not limited to my physical shape, to my body. It's not encased by this physical flesh and blood body that's sitting there. But the body itself is in consciousness. So at this moment, all our bodies are in consciousness, the same consciousness. So consciousness isn't personal. It's anatta, non-self. It's here and now. It's dhamma. And it's the deathless. And it's learning to to rec- realize this, that like what we call meditation, Buddhist meditation, is uh, using the Buddhist teachings for this kind of inquiry, this kind of investigation. So when the Buddha, you know, his, his uh, fundamental teaching after his enlightenment is the Four Noble Truths, And and so the first noble truth is the truth there is suffering. So that that makes it easy for all of us. Suffering is something we can all recognize. So it's a noble truth, it's not a metaphysical reality or ultimate truth. Suffering, you know, is here now. You 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 look outward. We want to look out at the suffering of the world, and uh, that's one way of of looking at suffering. But in meditation, we're not looking out. We're not going outward to find suffering. We're aware of suffering outwardly anyway. But inwardly, you know, so this then the the mood, the state of mind. Physical pain, physical discomfort, just your your body right now for sitting this long on the floor or on the chair. 
You know, you can only sit so long and then you feel physical discomfort. And we don't want that. We don't want pain, physical pain and physical discomfort. So we create suffering. I don't want this. Or we, we think the body is making me suffer because I've been sitting long enough, too long, and I, I, my body can't take it, so it's making me suffer. Or are you creating suffering by not wanting it? The nature of the body is about pleasure and pain. You know, when you investigate your body, it, it has, you know, it's painful, it's pleasurable, it's neutral. The sensitive form. But what is, what is it that is aware of the pain or the pleasure or the neutral sensations of the physical body? Is conscious aware? It arises in consciousness, ceases in consciousness. So this noble truth is to be understood and, and, and to understand suffering, you have to change your attitude and not just be blaming it on others or external conditions or the body, but observing it. Suffering is like this. You know, so it's, it's whether it's mental or physical, It's all suffering is about sankaras, and all sankaras really, you know, they they can't sustain. You can't sustain pleasant feelings forever, physical pleasure. You know, they arise and cease. You can't sustain uh, emotional uh, feelings of success and happiness and joy forever. They depend, these emotions arise and cease according to other conditions. But what we depend on, what we take refuge on, in is in awareness, satisampachanya, mindfulness, intuitive awareness. So intuition is more like investigating, observing. It's like this. It's not descriptive, it's not it's not analyzing why, but it's a knowing. The body is like this. The mood, the state of mind is like this. Greed is like this. Hatred is like this. Fear is like this. So this, this is to encourage this knowing of the way it is. Whereas a personality, you know, we're, we're trying to control everything, get rid of the bad and hold on to the good. So as, as people, you know, we, we, you know, as personalities, as separate individuals, we, we want to be good, we want to hold on to goodness and get rid of evil, Kill the devil, 
if we could just destroy evil in the in the world, you know that would be wonderful, and we there'd only be goodness. This is thinking, isn't it? This is logical thinking. If you annihilate the opposite, then you have the remainder. But on further investigation, good and evil depend on each other. There's nothing that is permanently good, permanently evil. The good arises and ceases, the evil, the bad arises and ceases. And what is it that is aware of the rising and ceasing of good and bad is conscious awareness, mindfulness. Now, the, the suffering as a noble truth, you know, this is the genius of the Buddha, taking something so banal, so common to all of us, and encouraging us to understand it, rather than try to just seek happiness, bliss, and joy as, as desirable objects. Because that's what we want. We want to be happy. We want to have love and security and stability. You know, those are all desirable goals. Even enlightenment, we want to, as persons, as monks, as nuns, we want to become enlightened. We want to get something we don't have. We want to get rid of our bad qualities, our bad moods, our bad thoughts. You know, and that's understandable on the thinking level, to hold on to the good and destroy the bad. But in terms of Dhamma, good and bad are sankharas, they arise and cease. So they naturally, you know, their conditions, so they depend on other conditions. So. Nothing's permanently evil or permanently good. But in terms of behavior, like for example in the, this monastic form, just the sila that monks, nuns adhere to. Today was a Padimok day, where the bhikkhus recited the 227 rules. These are, this a form of this tradition, which, you know, about action, physical action and speech. It guides us so that we, you know, we, we can live as a community because we agree to the same uh, precepts in terms of action and speech. In terms of feeling, mood, thought, memory, personality, we're all different. You know, so always as monastics, as someone that's referred to, what holds us together is the form, which is traditional form, that makes the community or 
or a monastic sangha work. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't be able to live together for very long because we'd, we'd all have strong views and opinions and about right action, right speech, right livelihood. And so this is, this is how to conform to a tradition, this, this very old tradition of Theravada Buddhism, as a way of reflecting on, on what we think and feel, our own personal reactions to, to the restraint of the precepts, the restraint of the sila. So it, it's, a, it's a reflective form, it's for reflection, for, for use to, for, to help develop awareness as a community. And you learn a lot because, you know, when you're by yourself, there's, it's one way. You have to deal with your own memories and past actions and vipaka karma. But when you're living in community, you have to, you're, you're dealing with the personalities, the, the views and opinions of many individuals. But in this tradition, then we have the Dhamma and the Vinaya. The Vinaya holds the, the, us together. And the Dhamma is what we open to, what we take refuge in. And so, since the Dhamma is here and now, then suffering as a noble truth an awareness of it, and understanding that is the practice of Dhamma. And you're seeing the suffering, instead of making it, you know, thinking it's personal and, and trying to figure out why you, you are the way you are, why you have these emotions or these feelings and whatnot, it's, it's not, it, you don't need to know that. You don't need to know why. But it is what it is. What you're feeling now is like this. And each person, if we, you know, is not going to be feeling the same thing at this moment. But the knowing is non-personal. The knowing, the awareness, knows the sankharas. Sape sankharani cha, all conditions are impermanent. And we chant, these are two phrases that we hear all the time in, in Buddhism, Buddhist, uh, Ajahn's teaching. Sape sankharani cha, all conditions are impermanent. Sape tama anatta, all dhamma is non-self. Anatta. So this consciousness, one consciousness here and now, and this is what is the reality of now, is consciousness is aware. It's like this. It's not, 
it's, and the awareness then with wisdom, with understanding sankharas arise and cease, we let go of them. We no longer bind ourselves out of habit, out of fear, out of conditioning to unsatisfactoriness, to things that aren't really not self at all, just empty conditions arising and ceasing. Sankharas are like the, they have no soul, no heart, no real essence, called like empty phenomena. But that which is not empty and is not phenomenal is awareness. And that's why it's so essential, that's why it's so important at this time, because, uh, you know, we have on the, on the society level, so many problems, so much social anguish and suffering in affluent countries like this one. Not to mention in poverty-stricken countries where they don't even have enough food to eat, we manage to create enormous anguish and despair and over the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world, by our thinking, by our identity with, with death-bound conditions. No wonder it's depressing when you think about it. If, if, if it just means you, all you do is get born, grow up and die, and that's it. Eat, sleep, procreate the species and drop dead. That you know, it's a pretty dreary scenario. The American dream, I remember, my generation, was you you get born in this nice family, white family, and you grow up, get a college education, get married, have two or three lovely, well-adjusted, happy children, buy a dream house, have a good job, get retirement, and then your old age. Then you don't talk about death in the American dream. I mean, it's like Prince Charming and Cinderella, and that it's a it's a fairy tale fantasy. But this is reality. Dhamma is reality. It's not. It's not fantasy, it's not dreaming, it's not hoping, it's not creating an illusory, a kind of heavenly state. It's the reality of now, of awareness. It's available all the time, you know, it's not, not something you lack or have to get, or you have to have special conditions to be mindful. You know, we often talk about, I, I, I sometimes in a meditation retreat I get really mindful and I'm very calm and I can see the rising and falling. When I go home, I I'm not mindful. I lose it. I get carried away with my old habits. <clears throat> That's not true. You're mindful all the time, otherwise you'd be dead. It's consciousness itself. 
But mindfulness aligned with wisdom is what Buddhist meditation is about, vipassana meditation. And this might looking into insight into the reality of Dhamma, not just believing in something called Dhamma. So the second noble truth is about the you know the origin of is from this ignorance of dhamma, not knowing dhamma, not having insight into ultimate reality. We attach to desire. We identify with desires. And then to point out that this is a desire realm that we're experiencing, like the bodies we have, our desire forms, senses, looking at things we desire or we don't desire. So there's gamma dhanha, the sensual desire, through the senses, which it speaks for itself, wanting the pleasurable objects of the sense, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, we want to have happy memories and happy thoughts. Desire for happiness is like bhavadana, which is, you know, a, a good kind of desire. Wanting to become an enlightened person is a good desire. Wanting to become an arhat or become a Buddha, or become a Bodhisattva, is, you know, these are noble desires, but they are desires. They wanting to get something you don't have right now, wanting to become something you imagine is better than what you are right now. Like being an enlightened Arahant is better than what you see yourself right now. So it's a aspiration, desire for becoming. So it's not nothing bad in it, it's good. And it's what most of us start meditating with. We we don't like the way we are. We want to become something better. And then there's the desire to get rid of things. So we want to get rid of anger, get rid of fear, get rid of jealousy, get rid of doubt, get rid of destroy worry and anxiety. We want to become a normal, happy person. We want to get rid of, you know, the all the nasty stuff. So there's three kinds of desire. And what is it that is aware of desire? Is conscious awareness, isn't it? So you're you're not desire. Desire is a sankara. It's a condition of rising, ceasing. So the second noble truth is a real, you know, encouragement to to investigate, to observe desire in these three forms, three categories. 
So what is it aware, what is it that's aware of wanting to become an arahant? That isn't desire. You're aware. It's a noble desire, but it arises and ceases like anything else. Or wanting to get rid of anger. You know that you can feel it. You you don't want to be an angry person. You want to get rid of it. It's like this. Wanting to become an arahant is like this. Wanting to get rid of anger is like this. And so these three kinds of desires arise and they cease. What arises ceases. What is born dies. And what is it that is aware of the arising and the cessation? Is awareness, mindfulness, consciousness, So it's not personal anymore. It's not me, Ajahn Sumedho, trying to become an arahant or get rid of anger. Because then I have to then identify I'm claiming something that's not mine. Because consciousness is non-personal. It's not mine. I can claim it, you know, if I didn't know any better. But that's not the way it is. It's not like this. With Ajahn Chah, I remember, you know, I always wanted him to announce that he was an arahant. Because, you know, in the first few years, I, I felt if anyone's an arahant, it's Lumpur Chah. But he never said anything. Because I, I wanted to, you know, I thought, well, he's been, you know, he's an enlightened, wise master of meditation, excellent monk. And why does he not say, you know, I'm an arhat? And he never would say that. And if you ask him, he, he would not say anything. He'd make you look at yourself. Say, why do you want to know what I am? Because it's impersonal. You can't claim it in terms of it being a personal attribute or quality. So these, even though that's a, a goal in life, you know, to Realize our heart. It's more important to to observe the desire to become one. Then you're at, then you're actually developing the path, the path of Dharma, the way of non-suffering. And if we look, always look outward for Arahant, who's enlightened out there, which monk, which nun, which you know, who's the Arahant of the, which is the Buddha of our time. The, the Messiah, the Bodhisattva, you know, then we, we tend to be looking outward, hoping to find somebody who is, without being aware of what we're doing. You know, so awareness is, if we 
looking for arahants as teachers, and what's more useful is to observe that. And then to see yourself, you know, we see a, we, we see ourselves as unenlightened personalities with problems, emotional problems, difficult childhoods, fears and desires that haunt us in our life. We see ourselves as as victims of circumstance. We see ourselves as as we've got to get something we don't have. We see ourselves I'm not good enough the way I am. I've got bad thoughts. I have bad desires. I get angry. I'm greedy. And we identify with everything. And so one one of the practices I recommend is to to recognize that these even when you're feeling these emotions, they're to recognize they are conditions, they're not self. Say I'm not that. If anger arises, you're you accept it, you're not but you're that's not what you are. You're not you're not anger, you're not greed. I'm not frightened person. There's fear, there's greed, there's anger. It's one way of this kind of not this, not that kind of practice, which helps a lot to to take away the sense of, of personal connection with these emotions. Because as long as they, you feel they're yours, and you never question it, you'll always have until till you drop dead at a hundred and twenty, <clears throat> not having realized you're not anything that you're thinking. You're not even the body that's dead or that's dying. We also a lot of guilt because we, you know, in the Western world, we're very idealistic. We have we can imagine the best of what we should be. And then we feel guilt, remorse, a lot because we we've said things we sh- that are not very good that aren't true, done things that. We're not wholesome, and or we believe in this, and we have memories of these events, and we identify with you know those memories. We feel guilty, wish we had never said that or done that. That's all, you know, conditioned phenomena. It's not so. So guilt is, you know, is, is remembering, memory, and identifying, you know, I told a lie 
10 years ago. <laughs> Not any much worse than that. Usually you don't. That guilty about 10 years ago. But guilt is like this, feeling guilty about what you've what you remember from your past is a sankara. It's not self. So one way of you know in in the practice of not this, not that, then you you're not that. That's the truth. You're not just lying to yourself or pretending. But it's a way of informing. So you can you know, where you believe it is yourself or it's your memory or your guilt, your problem, as long as you suppress that or try to figure out how to get rid of it or try to analyze it, you know, you're just creating more a sense of personal connection with everything, with memories of the past. Where Pachubanadam is here and now, it's not, has no past. The past right now for all of us is a something we remember. And ultimate reality is is here and now reality. It's not about the future, becoming enlightened in the future. Getting something you don't have in the future. It's waking up to the here and now, to the present moment. It's like this. And learning to trust that, recognize it, is like being aware of being aware. Consciousness knows itself. When you let go of sankharas, when you release your identity, attachment, habitual clinging to conditions, what's left when, the, you, when there's non-attachment is consciousness. Consciousness aware of itself. And it's peace, it's peaceful. There's not a peace depending upon everything being peaceful around you. It's, it's with us all the time. Ultimate peace is, is here and now. It's not dependent upon silence or particular postures of meditation or anything. It's, it's the, it's Dhamma, it's reality itself. But when we keep creating Conditions and believing in the conditions and identifying with the conditions, they're not peaceful. You know, they, because their nature is to change, to transform, to begin and end, born and die. And you'll find no peace in those kind of conditions, in any conditions. Any kind of permanent peace is impossible through grasping, blindly grasping conditions, sankharas. So that's enough for this evening. And I've been uh, caught, I've caught a cold. So that's why I've been unavailable the past couple of days. I apologize. I'm sorry that I got a cold. (laughs) I didn't want one. The conditions 
for a cold came and here I am. So it's good that I, even though there's so many people I can't distinguish who's who, I'm very glad you're all here. <laughs>